listening to Life Church Podcast with Pastor David Sinclair. Um, we are launching a brand new series this morning, and I'm thrilled about it. Uh, it's called When Life Stinks, and it's all about uh, the troubles and the pain and the suffering, the difficulties that we all experience as believers. And before you decide to figure out something to do for the next six months of Sunday, or the next six weeks of Sundays, um, I, I'm asking you to engage in this deal. This is going, I believe this is going to be um, a fabulous time of encounter with God. I believe that we're going to wrestle with some very difficult questions as a body together and uh, hopefully come up with some uh, good ways to talk to people about this very difficult thing and become more relevant to a world around us. You know, the Bible promises us that we will have trouble. Sometimes I feel like we as the church miss this big idea because uh, it's not something that's often... Uh, put on our church sign uh, that we will have trouble in this world. It's not something that we put in our bulletin. It's, it's not typically a church slogan that uh, Christians will suffer. Uh, but it is a very real idea in the scriptures. It's a very real promise in the scriptures. And kind of our launching passage here is John chapter 16, verse 33. This is going to be the overarching passage for the whole series that we're doing. And uh, I want to focus on that last part of the, the verse there, it says, in this world, Jesus is speaking to his disciples here, he said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And that's what we want to say to you. We want to make you aware that you will have trouble. We want you to be ready for trouble. We want your faith to be able to endure troubling times, difficulties, sufferings. But at the same time, we want to continually throughout the series, point you to the only place where our hope can rest, and that is in Jesus Christ, what he's done on the cross. And so, um, jump into this series with us. You know, in Matthew, Jesus reminds us again that we all have trouble. Matthew chapter 24, verse 9. He says, Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Doesn't sound very encouraging, right? Let's see if it gets better. John chapter 15, verse 20. Jesus says to his disciples again, Remember the words I've spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. I wonder how many times we as Christians have forgotten who we're following. We're called Christians, Christ ones, because we're following Jesus Christ. But they killed the guy that we're following. Jesus did not die of natural causes. He was executed. He had suffered capital punishment for the crime of claiming to be God. And sometimes we as his followers are surprised. What is this suffering going on here? Why, why should my life be full of suffering if we're following the guy that they killed? It seems inevitable to me that we may suffer. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. If we could pull that one up. Say this with me. Everyone. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It doesn't exclude any of us. It's all inclusive. I know this is sounding really negative, but I have to say this. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Some of you are going through very difficult times right now. We'll find this passage comforting. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial. Some, some translations say fiery ordeal. I like that one better because it just sounds cooler when you're going through a difficult time. Fiery ordeal that you're suffering. As though something strange were happening to you. In other words, he's saying it's not strange. This is normal. This is normal. You should expect this. As believers, as people living in this world, you will go through fiery ordeals. Now, what's the purpose for this series? Purpose number one is to prepare us to suffer for Christ and for the gospel. 
I believe that it's, there's a good chance that many of us in here will be persecuted and will suffer for Christ and for the gospel. And that is not beyond us as believers. We should expect some of that for sure because we are following Jesus Christ. And what we want is we want to prepare you for that. Because Christians are leaving the faith in droves because they're encountering difficult times. And one of the things I think is to be blamed for that is the way that we promise people things when they come to Christ. We say, hey, you need to come to Christ. He's going to fill your life up. He's going to make you happy all the time. He's going to, you won't have any more bad days once Jesus Christ comes into your life. He's going to fix everything. But Jesus Christ, how many of you think that that's true now? That you've been following Jesus for a while. He doesn't fix all the pain of life. What he does is he gives you hope, everlasting hope, eternal hope. And so we're going to give you some things, hopefully, that will give you an enduring and, and lasting faith. second thing we want to do is we want to give you hope as you go through the sufferings of life, that there is purpose in your suffering. That not a one of you in here is suffering in vain. That no matter what pain, no matter what trial you're going through, no matter what difficulty, no matter what catastrophe or, or tragedy, God sees it, he knows it, he's in it, he's watching you, he's there. It is not in vain. You are not suffering pointlessly. And we're going to look at some of the purposes for the suffering of the believer in the coming weeks. And then third and finally, we want to wrestle with some of these difficult issues so that we can actually be relevant to a world inundated with pain and suffering. I mean, you don't have to turn on the news very often to know that this world is full of it. It's all around us. You know, just this past year, Japan and Joplin and all the flooding and, and Hurricane Katrina and, and all these different things that we've experienced in the past couple of years. I mean, this world is filled with suffering and with pain. And a lot of times I think Christians give really soft answers to hard questions. You know, I'll never forget Jack's uh, experience when we were out prayer walking that first time. We came upon this guy and, you know, he was just sitting by his grill with his little dog. And this is the time that Pastor Bill actually petted a dog in front of us. And we were all blown away by that. Not by the fact that this guy actually talked to us and, and we were able to, to talk to him about Jesus. But Jack comes up and he says, hey, we're just out praying for people and I want to know if you could use some prayer. And the guy says, oh, no, no. I got, I got way too many tragedies in my life. I've got way too many tragedies in my life. And that's not uncommon. People think, how could there be a good God if the, all this bad stuff has happened to me? It's a very valid question. And I think a lot of times as Christians, we just give them soft, weak answers that don't help at all. In a lot of cases, I think it's better to give no answer at all than to give soft or weak answers that don't really address the question. So we want to help you prepare to give better answers to people in this neighborhood, to people that you encounter. You know, uh, as we dive in today, I've noticed something interesting about pain and suffering and catastrophe. I've noticed that in those times, people go looking for God. You all remember uh, 9-11 when it happened and the, the Twin Towers fell the very next day up on the billboards all around town and gas stations and stuff. Out on their marquees it said things like, Praying, pray for America or God bless America. You haven't seen God around here in years, but now all of a sudden that catastrophe hits. People are like, where's God? What's going on? What's God doing? Why did he allow this? Where is he in this? What's happening? Did God leave? Is God, what, why would God allow this? All these questions are surfacing. We just got back from Minot, and my wife's house that she grew up in um, was underwater up to the roof. Uh, her parents moved last fall. Call that the providence of God or whatever you'd call it. But 4,000 homes were destroyed. A third of the town is, has lost everything. 
much of the town of Minot as believers like you and me. And people are asking questions. I went online and I looked at some photos of all the destruction, just amazing malls just surrounded completely by water up to the roof. It's incredible. And I looked at the blogs of what people were saying, and they're fascinating because people are arguing back and forth about the problem of pain and suffering and evil. And everybody's got a different idea. Some people were like, this is God's judgment on Minot. And other people were like, leave God out of this. He had nothing to do with this. This is the devil. And other people were like, this is because you guys don't listen to the people that say there's global warming. And, and, and all these things, because Minot isn't a particular tree-hugging town um, in America. Um, but everybody's got their reason for why this catastrophe happens. And God is right in the midst of the struggle. And people want to know, where is God in the pain? Where is God in the suffering? And so I figured that that is the logical place for us to start in this series. Where is God in the suffering of today? Where is he in our pain? Where is he in our catastrophes, in in the things that happen that just don't make any sense? In early death, in sickness and disease. The loss of loved ones. Where is he? I want to look today at God's sovereignty. Sovereignty defined as God's exercise of power over all his creation. And I want to look at five major causes of pain and suffering in our lives that God is sovereign over. Uh, Because make no mistake, I believe with all my heart, according to the scriptures, that God sees and is in control of everything that we could possibly suffer. Now this may create more questions for you than it will answer today. And I'm very okay doing that. Because God is okay doing that. He included the book of Job in the Bible for a reason. And so I think he's okay with us asking some questions. But I want to remind us of his sovereignty, and I want to address these five big things. First, I want to look at God's sovereignty over Satan's angels and demons. Now, like they said on the blog in Minot, this was the devil's work. Okay, and you'll hear that from time to time. Leave God out of this. He had nothing to do with this. This was just the devil. And that person is a very good-willed, well-intentioned person that just wants to keep God good. and wants to preserve God's appearance, Right? We could all understand that. We don't want God looking bad because we're trying to represent him to people and we're trying to lead people to him. But see, we run into some bigger problems if we do that because then all of a sudden we have a God who's sort of not paying attention, right? The enemy's sort of sneaking around behind him, destroying people, and he's like, oh boy, I better go clean this mess up. I've got to go here over, clean this mess up. And he's just not watching carefully enough. Or we have a God that's very, very small, and he's sort of doing battle with the devil, and every now and then the devil wins, and, every, and then sometimes he takes ground back. But that isn't the view that we find consistent in Scripture. So I want to present to you that God is sovereign over angels and demons. In fact, he created them. Can we bring up that first Scripture? In Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, verse 32, God is actually so sovereign over them that they fear him. You all remember the story of Jesus approaching the demon-possessed man. And... They say to him, the demons say to him out of this man, What do you want with the Son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? They all know their end, and they all know that Jesus has every bit of power to torture them. He is sovereign over them. He has so much control over them. Look at what it took. Oops, I probably didn't give you the next verse. Okay, anyway, in the next verse, okay, some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus. So they're begging him. He's so sovereign over them. Drive us out. Send us into the herd of pigs. Then Jesus says one word, go. They have to listen to him. They have to listen to him because he's sovereign over them. Look at the next scripture, Mark chapter 1, verse 27. Very similar experience. 
The people asked. They were so amazed. They asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. Our God is not blinded by the enemy. Our God is much bigger than the enemy. He, in fact, created Satan good as Lucifer the angel and he fell. Lucifer's power compared to our God is so small, it isn't even worth being talked about. Now, these, these demons and angels are very big compared to us and very powerful. And they ought to be respected by us. Their power ought to be respected by us. But we ought not give them credit that they were able to somehow overpower God and do something without him knowing about it. God knew about it. If the, if the devil caused some destruction in our lives, which he does, that is his intent. He always wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And he does that in our lives, but we can be sure that if he does, God allowed it. God signed off on it, and God has purpose for you in it, though we might not understand right now. He is sovereign over Satan's angels and demons. Number two, God is sovereign over Satan's hand in persecution. Like I said earlier, I believe that all of us very well could face persecution for our faith. And Peter reminds us that the enemy is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He wants to kill you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to torture you. That is his desire for every believer's life. But is the enemy sovereign in that place when he is persecuting a believer, a dear child of God? Does the enemy have ultimate say and control in that? Or is God still ultimately in control of that? I would argue that without a doubt, without question, God is in control of that. Jack read the scripture this morning. It's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. In other words, if you suffer, it is God's will. If you don't suffer, it is not God's will. But the enemy cannot cause you to suffer apart from the will of God. He cannot, without God signing off, without God saying, that's okay, yes. I know that's painful because then you say, why God? But if we take God away from his sovereignty, we do a greater injustice. And it's just not true. Luke chapter 22, verse 52. We see the sufferings of Jesus himself, and we see his sovereignty over them. You know, these people come to arrest Jesus, and Jesus says, Hey, am I leading a rebellion that you have to come at me with swords and clubs? Next verse. Do we have the next verse? Whoops. This program doesn't give us the next verse, so I'll just explain it to you. Anyway, Jesus says, hey, am I leading a rebellion? You have to come at me with swords and clubs? I've been in the temple with you every day. But he says, this is your one hour. In other words, Jesus was very much in control of that situation. I have news for you, friends. God put Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary, not Satan. Satan was not in control of that. That was God's planned event. It was not Satan winning. It was God fulfilling his very plan, his very purpose for our redemption. And I praise him that he did that. Let's look at one more. John chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus reminds us further of his control over Satan's hand in persecution. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Not even you take my life from me, Satan. I lay it down. I'm in control. I'm sovereign. I'm way bigger than anything else that you can imagine. I want you to walk away from here today saying, whoa, we have a big God. He is way bigger than I've ever imagined. In fact, big enough that you cannot wrap your mind around him. He is sovereign over all things. Number three, God is sovereign over Satan's life-taking power. This is very comforting for a believer in today's society when we are facing so much destruction. 
that God is sovereign over Satan's life-taking power. I told you that it's the enemy's desire to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants nothing but destruction for your life. But he cannot lay a finger on you without God and without his permission. John chapter 8, verse 44 says the devil is a murderer. He indeed has murder in his blood. It's in his DNA. He wants to murder. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, we're reminded that the devil will kill some of us. It says, be faithful even to the point of death. It talks about how you'll be handed over. You'll, you'll suffer. You'll be in prison. He says, be faithful even to the point of death. In other words, some of you will die for this. Some of you will die for the cause of Christ. Be faithful even to the point of death. And you'll receive a crown of life. We can't sugarcoat that message. There's no other way to preach that one. But God is in it. Satan's hand is not sovereign even in the death of a precious believer. It is God who is still sovereign in that moment. Deuteronomy chapter 3, chapter 32, verse 39. We see God's sovereignty and Satan's life-taking power. He says, See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring life. I put to death and I bring life. Who is the giver of life? It is God. He is the only one that can agree to taking of the life that he gave. It doesn't make sense to us when a 17-year-old dies tragically in a car accident or a farm accident like happened this just past week. It doesn't make sense to us when a high schooler dies in drowning in the, in the Sioux River. It doesn't make sense to us when a tornado takes the life of babies and, and grandmas and mothers and dads. It does not make sense to us when terrorists fly planes into buildings. It says, God, why weren't you doing something? See, I believe that our God is, way, is big enough that with one breath, he could have smashed those planes that flew into the Trade Center. With one single puff. But he didn't. He was sovereign over it. He is sovereign over the enemy's life-taking power. In James chapter 4, verse 13 through 16, we're reminded very vividly of how short life is and how it is in God's hand. It says, now listen, you say, today or tomorrow we will go do this. Or to that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money? Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are but a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Remember that, people. You are a mist. You are a vapor. Remember God. Because your life, no one knows how long it is. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live. And do this or that. In other words, if it is the Lord's will, you will live. And if it's the Lord's will, you will die. And he alone is in control of that. Not the enemy, not some sort of natural disaster, not anything else, but God is in control of how long we live. Psalm 139, the psalmist David reminds us of that. He says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Beautiful, comforting scripture that tells us, tells me that live in Jada will not be taken from me a, a day, a minute before God intended to. He gave them their life, and their lives are his to take. He gave me my life, and it is his to take. It will break me if he takes my wife or children or any one of you. It will break me. It will be unbearable pain. But it is his life to take. He gave it, and he is sovereign over it. And we have to come to that place. The scriptures are so clear. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, gets even beyond human life and says, Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? 
Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your heavenly Father. So think about how important human beings are. And God's saying, hey, you know what? I'm still sovereign over the sparrows. In other words, if I want that sparrow to live 100 years, it'll be the oldest sparrow you've ever seen. It'll be an ancient sparrow. But if I want that sparrow to get eaten by a cat, I'll let it get eaten by a cat. God is in control, and he sees and knows every sparrow that falls. None of them fall apart from the will of our Heavenly Father. Are you starting to feel more safe? I feel more safe in this, but at the same time, I wrestle. Because I say, yeah, but God, what about this? How could it possibly have been your will for this child to die in its mother's arms? How could have it possibly been your will for this person to suffer so greatly with this disease for so long? And that's why God is God, and I am a man, a mere man. Because his ways, the Bible says, are high above our ways, and his thoughts are high above our thoughts. The Bible says, even as the heavens are high above the earth, so high are his thoughts than our thoughts, and his ways higher than our ways. Number four, God is sovereign over natural disasters. We're all asking the question in Hurricane Katrina, was this God? No, this wasn't God. God had nothing to do with that. God doesn't cause natural disasters. He doesn't cause anything evil. I believe that God is so big that a hurricane is very, very little to him. I believe he holds the hurricanes in his hand. Actually, the Bible says that he holds the universe in the span of his hand and can measure it. And the earth is just a simple blue dot in our galaxy. We serve a God that's really, really big. And if a hurricane caught him by surprise, then we're just not lining up with what the Bible says. The Bible says he is sovereign. He is in control. Does he cause them himself? God does not do evil. There is nowhere in the scriptures that mentions or we find God doing evil. Does he cause other things, secondary causes, to Does he allow them to bring about evil? Absolutely he does. And that's where it gets very confusing and mind-rattling. We know that he is sovereign in it and that he will bring about disaster, calamity, suffering, and trial for his glory and for our ultimate good, as we sang this morning. He's sovereign over natural disasters. Job chapter 1, verse 11. We see God involved in evil. And Job's the one, Job's the book where all your theological screws come loose and you start to really stress about life uh, because here we find God visiting with the enemy. I didn't know the enemy, and say, or the enemy and God had coffee. You know, how often do they meet? And then you start asking all these questions. When do they get together? Is it a, is it a daily thing? Is it an annual meeting? Like, okay, we need to do this, evil and good. Let's get together. Let's talk about what's going to go on. And I'm not going to let you do this. And you, know, wh- you start asking yourself, what, what exactly happens here? And the enemy says to God, actually, God's bragging about Job. He says, have you considered my servant Job, how upright he is and how he, he follows me and, and, and he's just good. And the enemy says, well, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he'll surely curse you to his face. And we expect God to say, no way, Satan, never. But what is his answer? Next verse. The Lord said to Satan, very well then. We're like, God, wrong answer. Let's rewrite this. You know what? We... How could you do this, God? He says, very well then. And I think sometimes we read this and we think, oh, well, that's Job. You know, he made it. He got, we, we see the end of the story. He got 10 kids back. He lost 10 children in one day. 10 children as well as all of his earthly possessions in one day due to natural disasters. Satan caused lightning 
And a great wind, the Bible says, like a tornado, killed all of his children in one day. Those children were not resurrected. If my two children died, and I got two more children, that wouldn't solve the pain of my two children dying. That would still be very, very painful. And God allowed it. He allowed it. Now, the interesting part, the really interesting part, and this is where the sovereignty comes in, is in Job 1, chapter 21. Let's, this is Job's response to the pain. The messenger comes and says, Hey, everything you have has been destroyed. All your kids are dead. I'm the only one that escaped to tell you. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. The Lord gave, and the Lord taketh away. Interesting that Satan caused the destruction directly. But Job knew My God is way bigger than that. Satan cannot touch me unless God allowed it. And he gave God the credit. And the inspired writer of Job does not say that Job sinned. In fact, he says he did not sin in all that he said. It was not a sin for Job to give God the credit here. God is not trying to escape his own sovereignty, his own involvement in evil. And I don't think we should work so hard to help him escape from it. I don't think he's asking us to do that. God was clearly there. He clearly could have said, no, Satan, not at all. But he allowed it. And eventually he did restore Job. But it didn't solve the problem of the pain. Mark chapter 4, verse 39, we see further God's sovereignty over natural disasters. Of course, this is the story of Jesus in the boat. And Jesus is sleeping and the disciples are worried they're going to drown in this massive storm that comes up. And Jesus gets up and stretches and says, hey, Peace be still. Trying to get some sleep down there. And the wind and the waves calm down. Immediately. This is our God. He is completely sovereign over it. Make no mistake, nothing catches him by surprise. Make no mistake, the wind and the waves are not out of his control. They don't surprise him. Tornadoes don't surprise God. Tsunamis don't surprise God. Earthquakes do not surprise God. He holds them all very, very sovereignly in his hand. He is in control over all of them. Number five, and lastly, God is sovereign over Satan's sickness-causing power. A very difficult place to wrestle for many of us. Acts chapter 10, verse 38, says that Jesus, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went around doing good and healing all who are under the power of the devil. Jesus Christ had power to instantly break the devil's influence and sickness. And the devil does cause sickness. And we praise God that Jesus has actually given us authority in that realm now. And it is right and it is good for us to pray for healing for people because we have a God that heals and we know his ultimate goal for us, his ultimate will is to heal us. And we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that whether in this life or the next, God will heal us. But it is up to him, the timing and the extent of that healing in this life. He is still sovereign over that. We don't don't get to be sovereign over that. He's commanded us to pray for healing and to believe in his healing power. Job chapter 2, verse 7, we see Job back in trouble again. As if it weren't enough to take his whole family, except for his nagging wife, and to uh, take all of his possessions, Satan comes back and says, Hey, I know we took everything, but if you would touch Job's body, he'll surely curse you. He'll surely turn against you. 
Okay, and so then it says in verse 7, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, because God gave him permission again, and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it. How many days have you had like that? Lost all your kids, lost all your stuff, sitting there with boils, scraping yourself with a piece of pottery. Bad day. Really, really bad day. And this is what his wife says. Very comforting lady. Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Not helpful, honey. And then next verse. Let's look at the next verse. Do we have the next verse? So his wife says, curse God and die. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Gentlemen, this does not give you permission to speak to your wife in this way, just because it's in the Bible. But he says, foolish woman, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Another translation says evil. Now, there's a very difficult theological passage for you because Job says to his nagging wife, shall we accept good from God and not trouble or evil? Job doesn't give Satan any of the credit. It was clearly Satan who inflicted the boils, but Job looks past the secondary influence and says, no, 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 this is from the Lord. This is from the Lord. He gave the permission for this. Job has complete confidence that this trouble is from the Lord. He is sovereign over Satan's sickness-causing power, and God doesn't correct him. He doesn't say, now, now, Job, leave me out of this. The enemy came and I made a deal, but hey, I'm not a part of this. He doesn't say anything. He says, that's right. It's, it's, it's right for you to accept both good and evil from the Lord. God is sovereign over all things. Exodus chapter 4, verse 11, a particularly difficult passage for my wife and I. As many of you know, Jenny has been deaf, nerve deaf since birth. Um, and oftentimes people will give us different reasons, and she's been prayed for hundreds of times, and we welcome any prayer for her, or at least I do. Maybe she's sick of it. And, and people do all kinds of crazy things. And um, I, we still pray for her to be healed because God is a healer. And he will heal her in this life or in the next. That is his promise. Okay? But um, some people will say, oh, this is the, the enemy caused you to be deaf. Well, I have a problem with that because it says in Exodus 4, verse 11, when Moses is talking to God, he says, um, out of, you know, he's talking to God in the burning bush. And God says, hey, I want you to go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go free. And Moses says, yeah, about that, God, I, uh, I got a lot of sheep for one, and I don't talk very well. And God says to him, he says, Moses, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Very, very difficult passage. Very, ah, it's awful to wrestle through, and, and I never wrestled through it until I had a deaf wife. But I believe that God is sovereign over Jenny's deafness. I believe that he is sovereign over Cindy's MS. I believe that he's sovereign in any sickness that you will encounter in your life. That he sees it, that he knows it, that he has a purpose, that he's being glorified in it, and that he loves us in it. And that his ultimate purpose is, I will heal you, you'll see. Whether in this life or the next, his purpose for us is good and to bring himself glory. That is God's purpose. But he is sovereign over it. The enemy can't touch us with sickness apart from the will of our Heavenly Father. John Piper said this. I found it interesting. He said, if we try to rescue God from his sovereignty and take him away from his involvement in the pain, 
that just came into our lives, we also lose God's present power to turn the pain for good. The price of denying God his sovereignty is too high to pay. See, friends, I don't want to lose God's power to turn my pain for good. I believe he's in all my pain, everything that's happened in my life. And I haven't been through nearly as much as many of you. But everything that's happened in my life, I believe God has been there. He's seen it. He's got a purpose for it. And God is the one person that can use evil, pain, and suffering and turn it for our good. It is impossible to fully understand this. I'm aware of that. To wrap our minds around it. And maybe uh, I've come to the conclusion is that that we need to be able to say, I can serve and love a God that I don't completely understand. Maybe you need to ask yourself that question. Can I serve and love a God that I cannot cognitively, completely, 100% wrap my mind around? And do you need a God like that? Because I think if you can completely, 100% assign a motive to every one of his actions and understand all of his ways and all of his thoughts, then you should probably be God. Because you're on the same level. But he reminds us in the scriptures, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are way higher than your ways. You won't understand me completely, but I've given you enough in my word to understand my heart and my intentions. See, in America, I think the most popular thing to do is the create your own God. We love this create your own thing, make your own thing, have it your way, the kind of Burger King thing. And we do the same thing with God. And I've talked to so many people that say, well, Dave, my God's not like that. My God's not like that. What they did is they made this little box that they can understand God in, and they put like loving, and they put um, understanding, and they put comforting, and they put um, long-suffering, and they put patient, and all these things that they like, and they dump them all in this box, and they say, there, now I can perfectly understand that. Um, he's not involved in any sort of evil. He just does good. He's kind of like Santa Claus, and, and I'm going to worship this God. This is the God that I like, and what I tell them is, well, that God is not God. That's your God. But that is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible does have wrath. The God of the Bible is just. The God of the Bible is holy. We have to embrace this God that has different facets that we cannot completely understand. And this God of the Bible does allow pain and suffering in this life, in this fallen sinful world, which, by the way, uh, man rebelled against God, and that's when sin entered the world. He did not create the world with sin in it originally. And originally, he will take away all sin. Or in the end, he will take away all sin. It's important to remember that. What we do know from the scriptures is that no matter what God's motives are for allowing evil, suffering, pain, he is right and good in all he does. And that he will fulfill his purposes and use even evil to bring about good in our lives and to bring him glory. That's what we do know from the scriptures. Some of the other things are very difficult to understand. Now, along with knowing that God is sovereign, it's also equally important to know that he is good. Because if we have a sovereign God that's ultimately in control of all things, but he's evil, we've got a huge problem on our hands, right? Because then he's in control of all things and he just can bring about destruction whenever he wants. But the Bible is equally clear about God's sovereignty as it is about God's goodness. That God is sovereign, but he is also extremely good. And I want to close by giving you a couple quick reminders of his goodness in the midst of evil, pain, and suffering. Think of Joseph. Think of Joseph. Joseph was an innocent man, the favorite son of his father. His brothers sold him into slavery because they were jealous and envious of him. 
He, he went from slavery to prison because the wife of his boss uh, lied about him. So he went from bad to worse. Then he had an opportunity to get out of prison, and uh, the guy forgot about him. So he stayed in prison for years longer. Eventually, when he got out, God gave him a vision. He helped the king foresee a huge famine, saved multitudes of people, and eventually he got to talk to his brothers who came to him seeking food. And he said, you meant this for evil, but God meant this for what? Good. Now, in the midst of it, Joseph was probably asking, how could you let this happen? I'm sold into slavery. I haven't done anything wrong. How could you let this happen? I went from bad to worse. Now I'm in prison, God. Are you not paying attention? Are you sleeping? Are you, are you even there? But all along, God was bringing about his sovereign plan. And in the end, we say, yea, God. He brought good out of something very difficult, evil. Think of David and Bathsheba. Lying, lust, adultery, murder. All these horrible, terrible things. Sin, destruction, death. Innocent people dying. Guess who was the great, 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 great grandmother of our Lord Jesus Christ? It was Bathsheba. It's Bathsheba. And of course, Jesus Christ is our greatest evidence of God bringing something very good out of something very, very evil, something very, very awful and difficult. Could there be anything worse than the crucifixion, the death of a perfect man? None of us are perfect, so if we died, uh, we are not innocent. But Jesus Christ, the one perfect person that ever lived, died for you and for me. He died on our behalf because God willed it. He planned that event, the death of his own son, that he would rise again on the third day, break the power of sin and death for you and for me so that we don't have to suffer eternally, to renew our relationship with the Father. In other words, God jumped into our pain with us. I want to read this story and I want to close with this. There is a little story in Christianity Today um, written by Charles White. And uh, it's about a village, a missionary village. And it addresses this issue of God allowing suffering to uh, believers. It says, In the village of Miango, Nigeria, there is, a, there is a sin guest house and a small church called Kirk Chapel. Behind the chapel is a small cemetery with 56 graves. 33 of them hold the body of missionary children. How could God let this happen? I'm thinking as I'm reading this. The stones read, these are the gravestones, Ethel Arnold. September 1st, 1928 to September 2nd, 1928. She was a day old. Barbara J. Swanson, 1946 to 1952, a little six-year-old girl. Elaine Lewis Whitmore, May 6, 1952 to July 3, 1955. Age of my daughter says, this was the cost of taking the gospel to Nigeria for many families in recent years. Charles White told his story about visiting this little graveyard and ended it with a tremendously powerful sentence. He said, the only way we can understand the graveyard at Miango is to remember that God also buried his son on the mission field. In the midst of our pain and our suffering, friends, I would say to you this, yes, God is sovereign. He is ultimately in control of all things. Anything that comes in our life that is painful and difficult, he is ultimately in control of. He has his hand in it. But I also say this, 
as difficult as, as it is to understand his sovereignty, as amazing as his sovereignty is, his goodness is also equally as amazing, as amazing in that he jumped into our suffering with us. He didn't have to. Nothing was forcing him to. But he sent his own son to earth to die on that mission field so that you and I can have eternal life. He is unbelievably good as well as sovereign. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you are sovereign. We're reminded today that you are big and we are small. You are great and uh, infinite and we are finite. You are limitless and we are limited. You know all things and we have limited knowledge and we worship you, God, as a God who is so far above anything that we can understand or comprehend. We enjoy the fact, even, Lord, that you can blow our imaginations in your word uh, and show us power that is unlike anything we've ever experienced. I pray, Father, for those people here today that are really having a difficult time trusting you in the midst of their suffering and their pain. I pray that they would no longer take you out of it, but embrace you in it. I pray that they would see your hand in it and at least come to the conclusion that you see them in their pain, that you are holding them in their, in, in their pain, and that you are allowing it for a purpose, that nothing that they are going through is in vain or without purpose. And that ultimately your desire is to bring yourself glory and to accomplish good in their lives. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.